Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who really has no idea how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. This week, I'm going to tell you a story. Do you remember during my introduction to the series, I mentioned that some historians are storytellers at heart? I'm going to be one of those today. This is one of those stories that is, it's fun to tell, it's fun to hear if you're into this sort of thing, and since you're listening to this, I, I kind of have to assume that you are into this sort of thing. And I'm shocked on a daily basis that this story hasn't been the subject of a one of these very high-profile epic films of the kind that have been so popular over the last decade or two. Um, you know, maybe it has been, and I just haven't seen it, which is certainly possible since I don't get out very much. It's the story of the Norman conquest of England. It's full of great characters, great suspense, and some great plot twists, even if the term Norman conquest does kind of give away the ending. Spoiler alert, BTW. Well, there are some great source materials for the story. Uh, One of the best modern narratives of the story that I've come across is David Howarth's 1066, The Year of the Conquest, Uh, It's a great read, and it's a pretty quick read at somewhere in the neighborhood of just 200 pages, roundabout. Contemporary sources include the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Uh, If you're interested in English history and you don't mind the archaic language, it's an excellent resource to have. There's a contemporary biography of the life of Edward, a Norse chronicle called Heimskringla. Uh, And, of course, there's the Bayou Tapestry. You really should see this. I would actually recommend... If you're listening to this on a computer instead of on your phone, open up another browser window and do a quick uh, Wikipedia or Google search uh, for the Bayou Tapestry. That's Bayou, B-A-Y-E-U-X, Tapestry, since uh, I'll refer to the tapestry every now and then and throughout the recording. Uh, If you can read the Latin on the tapestry, try not to get too far ahead. And for the other 99.9999% of those listening, don't worry, I'm going to explain what's going on. If you want to do that, now would be a good time to pause before going on. Okay, and now we're back. Now, we're going to start our story on Christmas Day in the year 1065. Most Americans today wouldn't recognize a Christmas celebration in Anglo-Saxon England. This isn't ugly, ignorant American syndrome. Most British people wouldn't recognize it either. Uh, It wasn't the important holiday we think of today. Um, The more important religious celebration was Epiphany, which wouldn't take place until January 6th. But Christmas was an important holiday in its own way. Uh, Our story starts out, at a Christmas banquet. Not just any Christmas banquet, THE Christmas banquet, the King's Christmas banquet, and everyone who was anyone would have been there. A banquet at Westminster in those days was quite a sight. Uh, There was no Charles Lawton chomping away on a turkey leg, not least because Europe wouldn't see a turkey for another 500 years. There would have been lots of bread and gamey meats and aromatic stews, which in the days before bathing was common might have made the room bearable to a modern observer. But amidst all of the the grandeur of it, all the sights and these rich aromas, there was something wrong, and it became apparent here at this Christmas uh, banquet. There was something very wrong with the king. Edward the Confessor was an old man for those days, um, somewhere in his 60s. 
he had devoted his life in recent years to building Westminster Abbey. This was a major undertaking, and it took a lot out of him. Uh, the Abbey is to this day where every coronation of a British monarch takes place. We saw that recently in 2023. Uh, it's where state funerals take place. We saw that recently in 2022. Um, anyone paying attention to British news in the last year or so uh, knows this. Uh, and if you're ever in London, it's well worth the admission charge to go see it. It's an icon of English church history, and it consumed Edward's later life. The man was obsessed with it. Well, back in November of 1065, uh, when he was busy dealing with a troublesome vassal, he had first noticed that something wasn't right. Not with the Abbey, uh, it was with him. He obviously wasn't as quick and energetic as he once had been, but now by the time the Christmas banquet came around, something was definitely wrong. And he struggled to make it through that banquet. Uh, he did make it through as far as we know, but it couldn't have been easy. It wasn't like he could make a quiet, unnoticed exit. He was the king. And being a king was a very hands-on job 24-7. So the day after the banquet, after he muddled through this thing, December 26th, he never left his bedchamber. It's possible that he was trying to sleep off whatever was bothering him so he could be back on his feet in time for Holy Innocence Day, which was going to be Wednesday, December 28th. Uh, for those of us who don't know the 12 days of Christmas, if they're not a leaping or a milking or a piping. That was the day Westminster Abbey, Edward's life work, would be consecrated. It was the culmination of all he had accomplished in almost a quarter century on the throne. If no one else had noticed at the banquet that there was a problem, they knew it on that Wednesday. That's when Edward didn't show up to the consecration of his own obsession. You remember when I said that anyone who was anyone was at the king's Christmas banquet? I should mention that such a gathering was actually unusual in the Middle Ages. And there was a reason so many important people were there. They were there to take part in the Wittenagemet, Gesundheit. The Wittenagemet was the king's council. It was made up of all the important nobles of the realm, and it assembled every Christmas, during Edward's time at least. Uh, for you Harry Potter fans, please don't confuse this with the Wizanagemet, although now you know where Rowling got the word. Uh, other medieval kingdoms didn't have quite the same feature, even if they had something vaguely similar. Uh, English medieval government at this time was, was light years ahead of anything else in Western Europe in, in terms of sophistication of the government. The Anglo-Saxon monarchy, and this is interesting, was not technically a hereditary enterprise. The Wittenagemet, Gesundheit, elected the king, among other duties. Um, usually the council followed the suggestion of the previous king, who often liked to suggest his own son. But even in cases where son followed father, it was because that was the consensus, not because he had an automatic hereditary right. Edward didn't have any sons. His relationship with his wife is a great story, but it's a long, complex, news series on Netflix kind of story, so we're not going to get into it right now. The important thing was that he didn't have any sons. And all those important guys who were there at the Wittenagemet, they all knew that. So when Edward didn't show up at Westminster Abbey, you can imagine what starts going through their heads. Uh, something was clearly wrong, and this was very, very alarming. It's sort of like that time when, when Boris Yeltsin landed in Ireland and never got off the plane. He just left the Irish leader standing around at the airfield waiting for him. It got people talking about how drunk Yeltsin must have been, and then later it turned out that he apparently was having a heart attack. 
Uh, or that time ambulances showed up at the White House and everyone started running through all the potential disaster scenarios on the news until they found out that George W. Bush just triggered a vagal nerve while eating pretzels. Or when Joe Biden does or says anything at any time and people start throwing around terms like dementia this or weekend at Bernie's that. Okay, They had disaster fantasies in the Middle Ages too. And in the days that followed Edward's absence, there must have been some fairly intense discussion about what had happened to him. The, the list of possible candidates for a replacement was short, and they're all compromised choices. And we're going to take a second to stop and talk about this, because this is what those, those people who were in the Wittenagamet uh, would have been talking about. Clearly there's something wrong with the king. Who is going to replace him, especially since he has no sons available? The most powerful man in England at the time, perhaps more powerful than Edward, was Harold Godwinson, the Earl of Wessex. Uh, it's sort of a dorky name, but, but it sounded very cool to the Anglo-Saxons. And Harold was a major player in the Anglo-Saxon political scene. He knew everyone, and everyone knew him. Uh, his visibility on the political scene was something like that of John McCain back in 2008. Whether you liked him or disliked him, whether you voted for him or didn't vote for him, everyone knew well, everyone who followed politics, at least, knew who he was long before he actually ran. Similar situation here. If you knew only two names in English politics at the time, it would have been Edward and Harold. Harold owned land all over the kingdom, which was important since in those days, wealth wasn't measured in cash. It was measured in land. He was an executive, if such a term could be applied to a noble in those days. What he had going against him was that Edward didn't seem to like him very much. He had been a rival of Godwin, Harold's father, hence the name Harold Godwinson. That's how they did it back when very few people even used last names. Furthermore, he was already as powerful a potentate as they came in England at that time, and making him king could only increase his power of the monarchy, something a good Englishman didn't really approve of. Aside from Harold Godwinson, there was also another uh, Harold, Harold Hardrada, King of Norway. He had a claim through his relation to the now-deposed Scandinavian kings of England that had briefly preceded Edward on the throne. He was an energetic uh, guy, a real go-getter. On the other hand, he was also a Viking. The English had known about the Vikings for over 300 years, and they had really solidly formed their opinion of Vikings after the first five seconds. Now, if you or I botch a first impression, we might be able to make it up by playing nice for the next 300 years, but the Vikings really didn't. Besides, Hardrada was clearly an outsider. So was William Labatard, Duke of Normandy. Uh, the name Labatard doesn't mean William the Bastard. It means William the Bastard. And before you th think this discussion isn't PG, I'm talking about his parents' marital status, not the fact that he was a jerk or something. He, he, he totally was a jerk, but we'll get to that later. His claim was through marriage, though he himself was an illegitimate son, uh, hence the name, and his place as the Duke of Normandy was somewhat dubious as well. Um, and like Hardrada, like I said, he was an outsider. Uh, King Edward had grown up in Normandy, and he had a lot of Norman friends. So William would have been a good fit for the outgoing CEO, but nobody else involved in all this seemed comfortable with the idea. They might have been uh, more comfortable with the Norwegian king if they had to choose a foreigner, 
But there was a rumor, uh, a dark, dark secret going around that some way, somehow, Edward may have promised his kingdom to William. Okay. Set him aside a second. Then there was Tostig, Harold Godwinson's little brother. There are some versions of the story that say that he was Edward's favorite. According to the Norse chronicle Heimskringla, Tostig was chief of Edward's army, whereas Harold was in charge of the king's treasury. Does that sound familiar? Remember in the last installment on Notes on History, the, the first part of the two-part episode on the founding of Rome, when Numitor took the power, but his brother Amulius had all the money and was able to use it to deprive his brother of the kingdom? I, I think we all know who our chump is in this particular story. Tostig had been an Earl of Northumbria up in northern England and had done such a terrible job, he got himself run out of town. Mm, no, not just run out of town, out of his earldom. Mm, no, not just out of his earldom, out of the kingdom. He had run afoul of his brother Harold and had fled England for his own safety. In the modern world, a politician in that sort of situation would end up on the lecture circuit or writing books. Now, what did a politician in the situation do back then? Save that question until later because the answer is a doozy. The council argued about this daily, but who was going to replace Edward? Uh, While well, the same time they huddled around the king's bed as the old man lay dying. And this, the king, he moved in and out of consciousness, and every time he seemed lucid, the crowd prodded him to make a decision. But the old man never gave any indication. Maybe he just wasn't as lucid as they thought. Who knows? But the day finally came, January 4th. By now, the king had been bedridden for 10 days, which in the days before television and toilets couldn't have been easy on him or his visitors. He apparently woke and called his family and the important nobility together. He seemed to know what was about to happen. Some versions of the story say that he took Harold Godwinson by the hand signifying that he was to be the next king. A contemporary biography of Edward claimed that the king commended his wife and his kingdom to Harold. This scene is in the Bayou Tapestry. If you uh, happen to have the image of the tapestry on another browser window and you can see it, or you happen to be in Bayou, uh, it's about the 26th scene in the series. I'm, I'm skipping some important scenes in the tapestry for a moment, but I'll, I'll go back to those in a, in a little bit. If you're not looking at the tapestry... Let me set the scene. There is a little embroidered castle on the tapestry with two stories, and on the second floor, we see the old king surrounded by four other figures. The narration above the scene reads, Hic Eduardus Rex in lecto aloquit fidelis. Here, King Edward, bedridden, addresses his faithful. The king is being held up by his steward. The woman at the foot of the bed is his queen, who we are assured, probably very disingenuously, was weeping over the intimate uh, loss of her husband. The stubbly-faced man standing over him, that's Stigand, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the most important prelate in the kingdom, but a controversial one as well. Don't blindly believe the tapestry on this one. It's very possible that Stigand wasn't there. I won't go into it here, but... Let's just say there was a question over whether or not the Pope ever accepted his friend request. Okay, And there's this other man kneeling at the bedside, his fingers just barely touching those of the king. That man is Harold. 
Ed hic defunctus est. Here's where things start moving along. On the first floor of the castle, we jump ahead of that evening. Et hic defunctus est. And here he has died. And just as quickly, immediately to the right, we jump ahead again to the next day, January 5th, 1066. Two men are seen giving heralds the crown. And then we jump again immediately to the right of that on the tapestry, and Harold is on the throne, holding the orb and scepter that signified English kingship. Hic resident Harold rex anglorum. Here sits Harold, king of the English. The Wittenagamet seems to have already made a decision. After I relate the, the, the entire story, we'll come back, and uh, you'll see that this scene will be at the center of a major debate among English, French, and generally medieval historians. Immediately after we see Harold on the throne, we are told that an English ship went to Normandy, presumably to bring Duke William the news. We can imagine how he felt about this. Flashback a minute in the tapestry to the first of the uh, uh, the first twenty-five or so scenes, and we'll see why William was reportedly furious over Harold's coronation. Have a look back at the tapestry if you haven't. If not, towards the beginning of the tapestry. Long before the death of the king, we see Harold getting onto a ship, and we see this ship sailing across the ways. There's some question over what Harold was getting on this ship for, and who you side with by the end of the story will depend greatly on whether or not you believe, um, or rather what you believe about the following scenes. The creators of the tapestry say his sails were full of wind, and he came to the land of Count Guy who is otherwise a completely unforgettable character. Fortunately for us, we don't have to worry about him too much. He's just some guy. Or some gi. Either he didn't intend to come to Count Gi's land, or he wasn't welcome, because in the very next scene, we see Gi seizing Harold. The tapestry actually uses the word apprehend. For the next few feet of the tapestry, what plays out is a scene where good old forgettable Gi brings Harold before William... There seems to be some discussion, and Harold goes with William as William beats up on his neighbor, the Duke of Brittany. It's an interesting scene visually, and you might imagine the dreams of, of medieval knights being filled with these little stitched figures running back and forth across the fabric as the battle plays out. Then they come to a bayou, which is depicted as a hilltop castle with a, a little ramp that we see what appears to be Harold riding up, and then something really important happens. If you're looking at the tapestry, look just to the right of Bayou. We see William seated on his throne, holding a sword over his shoulder like he was about to grant knighthood to a brave warrior, and standing in front of him uh, in front of him is Harold. You can always tell which one is Harold. He has this this unmistakable and appropriately named English style mustache that was very popular in those days. That's an uh, an Anglo-Saxon fashion of the times and it's it's how we can pick out Harold in a lot of these scenes. Not that mustache styles of the 11th century wouldn't make for an exciting pay-per-view event, but, but look at what he's doing, not what he's growing. He has his arms outstretched, and he's touching what look like two arcs. Not fancy arcs, nothing Indiana Jones was ever seen chasing after, but there are definitely two containers up on tables. Those are holy relics. Harold is performing an oath. More specifically... The tapestry, which if you haven't guessed is a piece of Norman propaganda, the tapestry is depicting Harold swearing to support William for the English throne. Did this happen? The Normans say it did. 
the Anglo-Saxons say it didn't. This is pretty simple. If you believe the Normans, you end up supporting William for the throne. If you believe the Anglo-Saxons, you end up supporting Harold. It's a bit of a debate, one of those debates that historians get into and their own personal opinion shine through, and there is no wrong answer, except for one of the two answers, but I'll explain my own thoughts on that later. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm a Harold man. So, William is angry about this, we assume. It, actually, it's a pretty good guess that he really and truly believed that the English crown had been promised to him. I suspect that he really didn't fundamentally understand how Anglo-Saxon politics worked, and we can make this guess because of what he did as soon as Harold was crowned. There was very little discussion. Letters are exchanged between the Duke and the new king. We can only guess what was in those letters. If the messages had been intended as a diplomatic discussion meant to secure peace, they failed wildly. We can talk later about motivations, personal ambitions, psyches, yada yada yada, but it doesn't matter. William had made his decision, and his decision was to invade England. This was no easy task. Caesar, the jackass, had tried and more or less failed. But that's not a good example, right? I mean, it's not like Caesar ever conquered Gaul or defeated Pompey Magnus with an outnumbered army. Oh, wait, of course, he totally conquered Gaul and defeated Pompey Magnus with an outnumbered army. Okay, as much as I dislike Caesar, I will give him credit that he was an excellent general. Okay. But he failed in his cross-channel invasion to secure the island for Rome. Even if the result was not so cut and dry, at the end of the day, he failed. Claudius did it. And if you're not familiar with his invasion of Britain, I'll let you know, he had inside help. So did the Anglo-Saxons, actually. Uh, they were not native to the British Isles. They got their foot in the door because they had been invited into Britain, which also is a fascinating story. Maybe I'll cover that one at some point. William didn't have that advantage. Actually, he had very little advantage at all. Harold already wore a crown on his head. He had vastly more resources at his disposal, not just because he was king, but by virtue of his power and wealth as the Earl of Wessex. Harold didn't have to make a dangerous channel crossing. For the geographically disinclined among us, remember, Normandy is in France. And as narrow as that channel is, for as many people attempt to overcome adversity by swimming across it, nobody just invades across it. Nobody. Napoleon didn't. Hitler didn't. As I said, Caesar tried and failed, Claudius had help, and the Anglo-Saxons were there by invitation. Eisenhower did it in 1944, and it played out rightfully as the most daring assault of all time. All Harold had to do was sit and wait for the Normans to, I don't know, drown while crossing the channel, or for them to get muddled down coming ashore, or to get nice and seasick before coming ashore to fight the English. Sit and wait. That's all. Sit. Wait. Harold was no dummy. He knew exactly what was brewing on the other side of the channel, and so he called out the feared. Not the feared, it's not something to be afraid of, not a new dish courtesy of the Muppet Swedish chef, F-Y-R-D, the feared. It was a, a the Anglo-Saxon militia. This was his best defense. An English king could call out all the free farmers from his realm and ask them to serve for a short period of time off their farms. In this case, he had them for two months. They were free men, not serfs, men who owned their own farms and provided their own equipment. These men had a lot of work to do back home and running their farms, taking care of their families and so forth. But in Anglo-Saxon England, the men who fought were the ones who had something to fight for. 
But they weren't fighting for anything right yet. They were sitting, and they were waiting. Harold had likely waited until spring was over to call them out. There was no rush during the spring since William couldn't possibly be ready yet. June came and went. The Feardman sat, the Feardman waited. They looked south, but there was no William. July came and went. Feardman sat, and Feardman waited. They looked south, but no William. August came and went. More sitting, more waiting. Nothing to the south, no William. While they were doing all this sitting and waiting, they also ate. As we all do from time to time. This wasn't like a modern army where supply routes and logistical experts provide a steady supply of provisions. There was no Walter, Radar, O'Reilly getting on the horn at all hours of the night to scrounge out a freezer full of a general's beef or strawberry ice cream. Feeding the feared was a major undertaking for Harold, but also for the local population. There were no K-rations, no canned spam. Food had to be locally produced because it would spoil if it had to be shipped from all over. Well, by the 8th of September, the food was running out, the enlistments were running out, and if the men were going to be prepared for the winter, they had to get back home to their farms. And so they went. The crisis had passed. At this point, Harold could be reasonably confident that there would be no invasion. The men broke camp, the ships Harold had assembled, apparently expecting to meet William before the Normans landed, they all sailed back to their home ports. The king himself, along with his personal entourage, made for London. While the men went home to their sleepy little villages and quiet farms, the king went home to his quaint little sleepy capital. London was not the major population hub it is today. He spent the next few days resting comfortably, eating meals probably uh, that were hot and, and of some quality, for the, probably for the first time in several months. There was this big sigh of relief. Ah. <sighs> You can picture this scene back in London. Roast is on the spit. The mead poured like water. The country was being invaded. Musicians played their... Oh, yeah. The message came after Harold had rested for just a couple of days. A town on the coast had been wiped off the map. He could look south all day long and not see what he had waited for all summer. The invasion had occurred at Scarborough over 200 miles to the north and the invading army was led by Harold Hardrada, king of Norway, and the former Earl Tostig Godwinson, the English king's brother. Cue dramatic pause. To be continued. Next time on Notes on History, I'll finish the story, and I'll talk about why we can learn just as much about studying history through the events of 1066 as we could through the Roman founding story I told you last time. Turns out, it's a deceptively simple lesson to learn. We'll also talk about some of the controversies surrounding the story, and I'll explain how this historian comes to an opinion on some of those controversies. And that's it for today. I'll be back next week. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.